Uh, maybe you guys heard this story a few years ago in the news. It was hilarious to me. In 2012, an Oklahoman politician paid for the installation of a Ten Commandments monument on the Oklahoma State Capitol's front lawn. That in and of itself is not all that uh, out of the ordinary. But not long after the monument was erected, the Satanic Temple announced plans to donate a public monument that would, quote, complement and contrast the Ten Commandments statue. And it looked like this. Um, <laughs> a, a predictable scuffle ensued, uh, eventually concluding in a Supreme Court decision to deny the devil statue, no, that's surprising no one, but also remove the Ten Commandments from the uh, outside of the building. To me, this was a hilariously cartoony skirmish. Uh, the satanic temple guys didn't exactly opt for subtlety at all, you know. Uh, it's like, oh, really? That's it? Okay, cool. Uh, and I watched that situation unfolding over time, and I would Google and be like, you know, updates on that devil statue. Um, and I was imagining this hilarious world in which the, both of those goofy statues coexisted outside of a building in Oklahoma. And at one point in the ongoing debate, uh, one politician argued, and I quote, the only reason why the Ten Commandments qualified is because at the Capitol, what we do is we make laws. We are lawmakers. And I thought, whoa, man, what a bold comparison. This fellow was comparing state legislation in Oklahoma to a way of life given by the Creator God to ancient Israel out Mount Sinai. Uh, and I was thinking, man, does this dude using the Bible as an arguing point actually know anything about the Bible? But then I figured, aren't a great many of us confused about the Old Testament in particular? And in particular, in the Old Testament, the commands, the laws that we find in there. So with all that in mind, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. I realized when I was making slides for this teaching that I had left the devil statue up for too long, so I had to add in a little quote from that uh, politician so that it wouldn't hang around all night. It just seemed like an omen, uh, you know, it's just a statue. Okay. In Hebrew, uh, the first five books of what we call the Old Testament are known as the Torah, which is a word that means law. And with good reason, those books do indeed include quite a bit of law. Uh, of course, most people with even a passing awareness of the Bible have heard of some of those laws, particularly the Ten Commandments. But there are actually a quite a few more in the Torah. 613 commands, to be exact, were given to Israel in the Torah. But for you and I to think of the Torah as a work made up primarily of commands is actually misleading because most of it is a story. The laws themselves are a part of that story for sure. And the story is a story about how God is at work creating new kinds of people. And these people are at work against the brokenness of a fallen world, a world that's been ravaged by sin and injustice and suffering, and to become transformed into the type of people that are capable of truly loving God and truly loving one another, God is doing something unique. So let's move through the story with tremendously broad strokes to get to the text tonight. First, in Genesis, you know the story, God creates humanity who rebel against God's kingdom and God's kingship. So God selects one fellow called Abram and then Abraham and promises to bring healing to the world through his descendants. 
Abraham's descendants, if you know the story, find themselves enslaved under a tyrant in ancient Egypt, and so God, committed to his promise, rescues them. Then, having rescued his people, God makes a covenant with them and gives them laws, something like a constitution for this new nation of people, Israel. And some of those laws have to do with certain unique customs that will set Israel apart from other nations in the world and enable them to relate with God. Others urge them toward concern for the oppressed, the foreigner, there are laws about morality, purity, and on down the list. The idea being that by living according to this constitution, Israel will act as a beacon to all the world revealing what the one true creator God is like and how to know him. So as the story of the Torah carries on, the 613 commands, which are actually only a selection of laws from Israel's constitution, are broken up and placed at strategic intervals throughout the ensuing story. And the format is an interesting kind of bummer. For example, in the story, Moses gives the first of the Ten Commandments, which is what? Does anyone know off the top of their head what's the first of the Ten Commandments? No other God. Oh, oh, of course. Thank you so much. I was like, this will make, it's like an equalizer. We're all embarrassed that we don't know. Uh, no other gods. And then the next one is, you know, don't, don't make idols either. And what follows immediately after that in the story is what? They, they make a god, a, a, a golden calf, and they start worshiping it. And the story really kind of continues in that oscillation. More laws given, and then more stories of rebellion. All of this sort of compiles as a discouraging tragedy in which no matter what the law is, Israel finds new ways to rebel against it. And the Torah ultimately concludes at the close of Deuteronomy, this is a story about Moses delivering a speech to Israel before they finally enter their new home, the land. And he sounds like me. He sounds like a pessimist. He's essentially saying, look, you've proven that you're not going to do any of this stuff. You're never going to keep God's commands. That much is abundantly clear. And the reason, Moses says, is that their hearts are hard. If they ever hope to truly become God's new people, then they'll need soft hearts or transformed hearts, Moses says. And that concludes the Torah, but the Old Testament, or the Tanakh, continues with more stories about Israel's failure, and these books are actually called the Prophets. Israel goes into their new home, the land, and they just break all the laws. So the Old Testament introduces these characters called prophets who remind Israel of what Moses already knew and already told them. If they're ever going to truly love God and follow God, then God's spirit will need to turn their hard hearts into soft hearts. Then obedience to God's way will no longer seem like a set of burdensome rules, but it will be, quote, written on their hearts. So to get there, God is going to have to send someone, an anointed one, Israel's promised Messiah and King, to lead God's people into an obedience that is written on their hearts, so to speak. So we have the law and the prophets. And then enter Jesus of Nazareth. If you remember all the way back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had no interest in throwing out the law. He understood himself to be fulfilling the law. Now, what does that mean? Jesus understood, like Moses, like the prophets, that the hearts of human beings were innately set against the ways of God, and so he came to solve this terrible dilemma, and Jesus actually proposed a summarized means of fulfilling the entire law, at the heart of which was this idea of love, which sounds 
sounds easy because most of us would at least purport to be advocates of love, I think, though we all define the term quite differently. But then, as the Sermon on the Mount unfolds, we begin to realize that Jesus' paradigm for love is actually more robust, more complex, more demanding, and more beautiful than we care to realize. And this is clear from the outset because Jesus quotes the law from the Torah. You have heard it said, do not murder. Is not murdering someone a loving thing to do? You know, refraining, yeah, it's great, right? Refraining from murder, great, check, that's very loving. But then, as you know, Jesus elaborates on that. He says that in the same way that murder violates God's command to love, treating other people with disrespect or bitterness or anger or envy or lust does the exact same thing. It violates God's command to love. And Jesus goes on to say that our concern for love should extend all the way to our enemies as well, not just people who we're friendly with or who are within our own tribe, but our enemies, people who are against us, the oppressors, the evil ones, rejecting violence, rejecting hatred against those who are made in God's image, which includes every human being. So you see that, sure, we can summarize the law, but it doesn't make that premise at the heart of the law any easier to uphold. If you summarize, say, oh, it all has to do with love, great, that doesn't make it any easier. And since Israel couldn't do it, Jesus acted as the true Israel, and he just did it himself. I love that, it's amazing. He fully loved God, he fully loved other people, even his enemies, and even unto death. And in doing so, Jesus is revealing to the world, just as Israel had been originally called to do, what God is like and how we can know him. So having accomplished all this, Jesus died, he was resurrected from the dead and told his followers that he would send the Holy Spirit, which would finally transform their hard hearts into soft hearts, creating a people who can and have carried on the mission of God following Jesus' example. Okay, that's the story in a nutshell. You guys still with me? Yep, great, thank you, Danny, for the double thumbs up. I appreciate that. Now, this brings us to tonight's text, Matthew chapter seven. If you're there, let's read just a single verse, Matthew seven, verse 12. Jesus says, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Now, as you may have guessed, there's actually quite a bit in this single sentence, so let's unpack it piece by piece. Now, notice that first word, so. This is a reminder that this line that we've just read isn't like a new idea that came out of nowhere. It's the outworking of everything that Jesus has just said prior, meaning he's been teaching his disciples to embody radical generosity, to give up worry, to give up judgment, to believe in God's incredible goodness as their father. And then he says, so, in light of all that, and he goes on, in everything. So you want to wager a guess what everything means here? Everything. Great. Yeah, we're awake. Everything. In the mundane things of life, in joy and tragedy, in our professional endeavors, in our own homes, our private life, our public life, towards strangers, toward loved ones, friends, enemies, all things, all relationships, in everything you do. And he goes on, do to others and interestingly, there are actually a variety of Greek words that mean others. For example, adelphoi refers to other people who are your friends or your family, your own group, your own tribe. But Jesus doesn't use adelphoi. He uses anthropoi, meaning everyone in the truest sense of that word. Family, friend, stranger, enemy, man or woman, every race, every culture, every ethnicity, every nationality, every political affiliation, every religion and worldview, everyone due to everyone, this is about as broad a setup as one can possibly establish, right? In everything, to everyone. You guys see that? 
It's all-encompassing, and everything means everything. Due to everyone means everyone. He's saying this is a comprehensive, all-encompassing way of life. So what is the way of life? And he goes on. Do to others what you would have them do to you, which is an idea that's as simple as it is radical. Uh, here are a few alternate translations of that verse. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Uh, New Testament scholar Frederick Dale Bruner says, you could translate it this way, the way you want people to treat you is the way that you should treat them. Or this from the message, here's a simple rule of thumb guide for behavior. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you, then grab the initiative and do it for them. Jesus is commanding his disciples, essentially, to value all people with empathy. In any and every situation, in any and every interaction and relationship, you are to actively consider the way you would like to be treated if you were them, and then you are to act on it. Meaning you're not just thinking of what you want as you, which is often terribly unique and sometimes specific to only you, but you're putting yourself in someone else's shoes, in someone else's skin, so to speak. You are to do this responsively in interactive sense and as life comes at you, but you also do it actively. You, uh, you think about it, you go do it, you, in the language of the message, grab the initiative and go out and do it. And Jesus goes on, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Some of your Bibles prefer the more literal rendering of that phrase, which is, for this is the law and the prophets. Again, here are a few other ways of putting that same line. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets, or Bruner again with, this is what much of the Bible is about, or the message. Add up God's law and prophets, and this is what you get. I love that. When Jesus argues that this is the law and the prophets, he's essentially saying that this paradigm of living is what the Bible is all about. But there's more to it than that. Jesus is also summarizing his own collection of teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. You can actually outline the entire Sermon on the Mount building to this summary. See, it begins with an introduction, which are the blessings or the beatitudes. Blessed are those, you know the story. Next is a call to Jesus' disciples. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Jesus then comments on the actual law and the prophets saying he's not come to abolish them, he's come to fulfill them. And then he explains how, using 14 teachings directly from the law and the prophets, you know the introduction, he says, you have heard it said, and he quotes the Old Testament before he offers his fulfilling interpretation, but I tell you. And then we have our text tonight, yet another comment on the law and the prophets. So consequently, scholars argue that the first comment on the law and the prophets together with tonight's text, make up kind of respective bookends to the entire Sermon on the Mount because these specific teachings open and conclude with a word on the Bible. And what comes after this text is something of an outro to the Sermon on the Mount. What we're getting at is that Jesus is not only summarizing the Old Testament, he's also summarizing his own manifesto with the same statement. And as we said last week, it's all about living in right relationships with God and with other people. He believes the same thing is true of the entire Old Testament. In fact, he goes on to say it again. Later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus will be asked as a Jewish rabbi to name the most important command in the entire scriptures. And he answers by first quoting Deuteronomy 6, what's called the great Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, you know. And he adds to it Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. 
This is incredible to me because so much work has been done to get at the heart of the scriptures, and rightly so. Um, Given the incredibly layered and dynamic and living nature of the text, it is an understandably difficult thing to do. Good grief. I mean, there's just so much to learn and read, but not for Jesus. He gets a simple challenge. Hey, sum up the whole Bible in a line. He says, easy. Do to others what you would have them do to you. And the New Testament goes on to reiterate and reinforce this blunt summary several times in case you thought it was an an anomaly. In James chapter 2, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. Meaning, if you do this, you've done it. That is, you have gotten to the heart of God's law and the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul says it several different ways. He writes, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not, shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Later in Galatians, he writes, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight puts it like this. The entire law finds its goal and fulfillment in the observance of this one command to love others as oneself. The entire will of God is about learning to love others or to treat others the way we treat ourselves. And this summary is certainly a popular one. Uh, The idea of do to others what you would have them do to you. This is arguably the single most famous teaching from Jesus of Nazareth. It's often referred to in popular culture as what? The Golden Rule, and the title was coined, we think, in the second century by the Roman Emperor Alexander Severus. Uh, Levi's downstairs. He would have really appreciated the, the Harry Potter connection. Alexander Severus, not a disciple of Jesus himself, but Severus was so impressed with the wisdom of this quote from Jesus that he had it inscribed in gold on his chamber wall, as the story goes. And interestingly, Jesus of Nazareth was not the first teacher to say something like this. In fact, there's a junk drawer term for all sorts of variations on this saying called the maxim of reciprocity which appears in various forms throughout many religious and philosophical traditions. Ethicists argue that there are actually three similar but different maxims of reciprocity or rules of life. First is the wooden rule, and it argues that you should do to others what they do to you. Tit for tat, in other words. What goes around comes around. When people treat you with kindness, you should reciprocate. If people treat you poorly, you should do likewise. Uh, Interestingly, this is actually in the creeds of the satanic temple. When other people are kind to you, be kind to them. When they're cruel to you, be cruel to them. And this is the lowest level of human maturity. Think about it. This is, this is how my four-year-old and uh, one-year-old behave towards one another. And uh, this is how many adults I know continue to behave to this day. Where the idea is, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. If you get on my good side, you will reap the benefits. benefits. If you screw me over, I'll write you off. If you insult me online, I'll passive-aggressively do the same thing. If you talk about me behind my back, I'll drag your name through the dirt. If you slander our political party, we'll destroy your political party. You bomb us, we drone strike you, and on and on and on goes, the wooden rule, do unto others as they do unto you. Next, you have the silver rule, which is don't do to others what you would not have them do to you. Uh, Another famous Jewish teacher who predates Jesus, uh, Rabbi Hillel, or, or Hillel the Elder, was famously challenged by a Gentile to, quote, summarize the whole Torah while I stand on one foot. Uh, I guess that just means there's a time limit to it because he's bad at this, but, you know, it's 
pretty easy. Hillel replied by saying, quote, do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to you. This is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. Confucius actually said something really similar. Whatever you do not want others to do to you, do not do to them. This idea was well represented in the ancient world prior to Jesus, and it's a fine rule of life. I mean, who would argue that that's a bad way to live? It's good. But notice that while Hillel and Confucius phrase the maxim in the negative, Jesus opts for the positive. Jesus asks more of his disciples in his summary than Hillel does. There's a world of difference between not doing harm and actively doing good. Jesus is asking for more than just refraining from bad behavior against your neighbors. He requires active and creative initiative to treat others with love. This is never contingent on whether or not people treat you with love, which is fascinating. From what we can tell, Jesus' take on the maxim of reciprocity, what we call the golden rule, golden rule, was a brand new teaching at its time. No one had put it that way before. Leave it to Jesus to take the wisdom of sages throughout the world and with a slight variation of words, inject it with radical love of God. And this is why, uh, I would argue, it seems so radical to Jesus' audience. It did then, and it does now, and why this is arguably one of Jesus' most famous teachings. Because it should come as no surprise that God defines love in far more subversive, radical, incredible ways than you and I tend to use the word. Think for a moment of the ongoing irony uh, that permeates the current socio-political landscape of America, and in many ways the world, as we move more toward globalization. On the one hand, love is purported to be a huge value. You'll hear people going on and on and on about, you know, just love people, quoting Beatles lyrics like it's just the freshest idea in the world. But what they often say they mean by just love people is do whatever makes you happy until someone else's pursuit of happiness contradicts their standard of right thinking and right living. A great deal is said today about the notion of tolerance, but historically, uh, tolerance was defined as learning to tolerate opposing worldviews without destroying one another. Today, the kind of self-appointed watchdogs of morality, the advocates, uh, advocates of tolerance, have assumed a more kind of dogmatic, fundamentalist position that argues conform to our standard of rightness or be destroyed. And then the other side responds in turn. So the ever-increasing chasm between the right and the left becomes reinforced, which leads to more and more political idolatry and dogma and demonization and social media vitriol and on and on and on the conflict rages. But Jesus' golden rule is absolutely unconcerned for moral, political, and geographic borders. In everything, do to everyone as you would have them do to you. Friend or enemy, like you or unlike you, family or stranger, stranger, local or foreigner, go out of your way to treat them well. Stanley Hauerwas writes this, love fulfills the law, but this is not a sentimental love. Rather, this love is a radical politics that challenges the world's misappropriation of God's good gift. Christ being the embodiment of God's love means that disciples cannot know love apart from loving one's enemies. For that is precisely what God has done regarding us. We were God's enemies, yet God would still love us, even coming to die for us. 
And the radical outward nature of this teaching can distract us from one key assumption here. Jesus assumes that we will love ourselves, that we might know what it means to treat ourselves well so that we can love and treat others well in turn. Uh, maybe for many of you that makes complete sense. For others of us, that is an even more difficult teaching than to love other people. And we need to hear our teacher's words. This is uh, never a fun or glamorous thing for me to admit, but I, I try to teach out of my weakness rather than my strength. One of my greatest um, internal struggles with my own flesh, my own brokenness, for, for really as long as I can remember, has been with self-loathing. And uh, I recently uh, confided with Abby, my wife, in a moment of vulnerability that I feel like I need uh, words of affirmation from her in order to feel loved and valued, whereas, you know, she experiences affection more so from acts of service or different things than words. And she told me that in order for her to do that well, in order for her to love me with words, then I need to learn to stop recoiling when she offers them. And it's true, I do. At times, I so dislike myself that I, to hear someone I love offer words of affection is like fingernails on a chalkboard. And frankly, this is not right. Um, for me, this teaching hits with twice the weight because Jesus is teaching his disciples to learn to accept and believe the Father's loving goodness over them that they are valued, that they are precious and beloved, and to then live as a conduit for the fathomless love of God, projecting it outward into the world without qualification or condition, just as God does for us. And isn't that beautiful? What an incredible way to approach life and God's love. But many of us are learning to love ourselves in the first place, meaning this makes this, this particular teaching tremendously difficult. Most of us are learning to love people we get along with. I mean, those of you that are in communities know that full well. It's hard, especially mine. They're the worst. They've got it easy with me being in there, but man, they make it difficult on me. Um, most of us, I was kidding, but geez. Uh, most of us are learning to love people that we get along with, um, but all of us are learning to love our enemies. That's just unnatural to the human mind. And here's Jesus, our teacher. Don't just refrain from doing evil to other people. Inconvenience yourself in order to do good for them, friend and enemy. Now, that seems like Jesus is just his typical, unbelievably radical self. But imagine a world in which disciples of Jesus actually learn to live according to the golden rule. A world in which husbands and wives value one another before themselves. A world in which parents, in the ongoing stumbling struggle of raising children, go out of their way to think of how their children would like to be treated and then act on that. Imagine a world in which gossip and passive aggression and political acrimony and violence and xenophobia and racism and misogyny are all being stifled and snuffed out by disciples of Jesus who are learning to see all people as made in God's image to put ourselves in the shoes of the other, to imagine new and creative ways to love them well and disrupt our comfort to do so. Don't you want that? Doesn't that sound like an incredible vision of life? That to me sounds like the kingdom of God. And I mean, think, think very narrow for a moment and envision your own life, just your own life, as one marked by observance of the golden rule. Imagine the freedom and the beauty that you could bring to your friendships and your family and your marriage and your children and your workplace, your schools, your community, on down the list. You and I 
are, are being indoctrinated by our culture at all times with a lie that argues that your own happiness is the chief end of your life and the means by which you attain it is to look out for number one. But God's kingdom simply does not operate in selfishness, ever. In God's paradigm of a life well-lived, happiness is great, but it is the byproduct, the natural byproduct of living in right relationships with God and with other people. A life ordered by a love for God and for other people. And when we love other people, we do for them what we would like done for us. And that is a seemingly tall order. Yes, easier said than done. But listen, if you follow Jesus, you have the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead alive in you. And if that spirit can raise Jesus from the dead and do prophecy and miracles and healings and all sorts of wondrous signs, can it not teach you to love other people the way that you'd like to be loved? Can it not enable you to practice the way of Jesus well? This is not an impossible ideal. Like all of the teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, it sounds incredible, it sounds beautiful, it sounds nearly unattainable, unattainable, but it is actually a command, a command from our teacher and rabbi to live this way. And really it just begins with asking a question in your next interaction or argument or interpersonal frustration to stop and think and train yourself to ask the question again and again and again. If I were this person with their story and their struggles and their wiring and their personality, how could someone reveal to me the love of God? And then having asked that question and come to a conclusion, do that. And then do it again. And then do it again. For this summarizes the law and the prophets. Would you guys mind standing up with me as I pray and invite God's spirit to empower us to live this way, beginning this evening and on into the week to come.